Bookworm Games, episode 40, The Room of Sophia. So this chapter opens with the player finally getting at the truth about Satan and Sigurd. The truth about their past and their pre-existing relationship emerges because of that relationship. They talk to one another at the bottom of the spiral stair in the Yggdrasil, that curious link between its engine room and Mason's elegant bar. They're talking about how they had been called elements at Jugend, Solaris's academy. And we get the nudge to start to shift our curiosity and suspicion from them over to Miang. They are more afraid of her than of the commander, Ramses. A little wrinkle here is that not only does the player get to see this interaction, as we've been privy to extra scenes all along, like reading a book with an omniscient narrator, but Faye is eavesdropping and hears it all too. And then Bart almost blows his cover, but they shush him and they both listen. And in this, they represent two kinds of player. One, intent on unraveling the story, is like Faye. The other, brash and headstrong, wants to get on with the game, like Bart. But the suggestion here is that even the latter can be brought into the secret, the fascination of learning and figuring things out through the strength of his relationships. The sort of player who doesn't care about the story will either have been converted or will have quit by now, and even the player who does care about the story will have to be put to the test by the extremely text-heavy and at times tedious level of detail building up to the bravura set pieces of the battles and twists in store in these chapters. Once we're in Nissan, the atmosphere is tranquil and yet tense. There's relief and joy at Margie's return, but there's still fear for the consequences of her rescue, particularly what it will mean for the people's safety if Shakan or his Gebler overlords should retaliate. The mystery of Chuchu, or whatever name you gave her, with her living doll motif and her penchant for spiders, will not be pursued further just yet. Instead, all attention is on the politics of the rightful prince and the usurper, the roles that the hidden superpower and the Nissan church might play in their respective power bases. The cathedral scenes, for me, form as wonderful a sequence as those at Sitan's house with the music box, or the meeting in the forest between Faye and Ellie. The cathedral echoes both in that the music there is actually being produced within the framework of the story, like with the music box, by the choir of nuns in the church, and then this breaks off for their joyous reunion with someone they had feared was lost. Their hymn is even a variation on the same song, I think. This version bears the ponderous title, The Wounded Shall Advance Into the Light, playing on that theme of brokenness we saw signaled first in the omen of the music box breaking. Here, the reunion is smoother than Faye and Ellie's, 
Sister Agnes surprises Margie by not rebuking her. There's a hint at education again, being something fundamentally stern in this world, yet mitigated by relationship. Even Margie gets a little emotional and has to laugh it off when Bart remembers the last time he was there as a kid. He and Satan notice the effort it costs her, of course. They remark that he could learn something from Margie's awareness of her role and her composure. She leads the way up a long, narrow flight of stairs to the balcony or mezzanine or clear story. That's the word running around the cathedral nave. The emphasis is on the difference between childhood and adult responsibility, how they would hide up there when they made mischief, but now they marvel at the view, Margie's favorite. We get Satan's analysis as well as Margie's explanations to guide our interpretation of what's going on here. It's perhaps a shade didactic, but even the doc seems awed by the implications of the art. Rather than recapitulating, here's a poetic rendition. Daylight streamed through stained glass, painting the dust motes pouring down. From below, singing voices swelled, harmony arising with their own lofty echoes, earlier, first one, then another, then all broke off, embracing their great mother, their dear girl returned in the midst of the hymn suffused with joy, while straight ahead the altarpiece's ardent star shone forth its flame mingled with incense across the vast expanse equal in beauty, in form distinct. Such, too, were the two figures which faced one another there, fully rounded, their profile presented to the faithful, their own attention all caught up, transfixed. They held out their hands, each to the other, despite, yet defining, the empty space between. Each had one sex, each one wing. According to a legend long handed down, God could have created human beings perfect, but he chose to shape us helpmeets, dependent upon love if we are to fly together. So that is the reason, the symbolism, I see. And do you in Nissan believe as, on further inspection, these two appear, God's angels, male and female, an unusual depiction, but quite clear and distinct, and the place of God's advent, or the path to God, or is it both, must be the space between? How much of your teaching it contains? Why, Dr. Uzuki, what an amusing fellow you are. Oh, excuse me, how gracious of you, great mother. As if to undercut the risk of pedantry even further, Fay makes a point of not understanding what he says, and Bart misses the point and opines 
that it would be much less bother for them to just fly independently. Marchie's wish to be of help like that someday surely has a note of self-recrimination, referencing back to her failure to save her mother and grandmother, but also a note of resolve to help Bart regain his throne and perhaps to rule more wisely. But like the grandmother's room in The Princess and the Goblin, there is a still higher chamber to be reached now, the room of Sophia. Bypassing the usual protocol for visiting, Margie takes us there directly. The window, the light in the familiar pendant shape, is much smaller, giving on to what is practically a cell. Again, the light from outside illuminates a brilliant work of art, but this one is still more meaning-laden, as it is also more enigmatic for now. Satan notices that it is familiar, and asks Faye if he does too. Faye's recognition is partial, thinking of the subject's resemblance to Ellie, whereas Satan had perceived not the content so much as the form, the style of the artist's brushwork. Only then does the camera move so that we are also seeing the painting. Once more, we have the characters within the game representing for us complementary interpretations of it as a work of art. This time, Within the inquiring sort of player, we can distinguish further between the one who focuses on the meaning of the subject matter, stands in for the game, and one who contemplates the inner self of the player, who would stand in the place of the painter here. The sort who, like Margie, tells the story in more mythic terms, and the sort who, like Satan, seeks to unpack it more analytically. And then the mystery of the beautiful woman who seems somehow anxious. The mystery of the master artist whose work is evidently unfinished lays over top of the mystery of the game itself and the person playing it. The others go back down to ask Sister Agnes for more information since Margie's grandmother is gone. While Faye, lingering a moment alone, has a flashback to having painted there himself. The scene is rendered in the ordinary graphics of the game, only flickering through multiple colors before settling on a clear view. Sophia, sitting for her portrait, and the name Lacan appearing slowly. Then we flicker back through to the present moment as Satan checks if we're okay. While we're in this room of Sophia, it's past time for a digression about names. There have been lots of interesting ones, but this is way too overt to pass by. Unfortunately, I haven't read any Lacan, so I go ahead and suggest the closest thing that I have read at this time, which is Jane Gallup's fascinating meta-introduction called Reading Lacan. He 
he's known for being practically impossible to read, but also for his theory of the mirror, that counterattack stance we noticed with Ramses last time. To me, Ramses's name sounds like the Egyptian Ramses, but his first name is apparently interchangeable with Carl, as in Jung. Jugend, the school's name, means youth. Nissan, like Ava and Kislev, and later Elru, or Elul, are Hebrew months, whereas Ignis is simply fire. And Solaris, from the word for sun, alludes most closely to the classic film. Bart, Bartholomew, is a name which might go with the Egyptian connection rather than the Simpsons, though he is a sort of a troublemaker. It might mean son of Ptolemy. Margie is a pearl, Margaret, and Agnes is pure or holy in Greek. Satan is Japanese shitan, a sprig of rosewood used frequently for bonsai, according to the page on the Xenogear study guide. Elian Yang, spelled with extra Y's in the Japanese Roman transliteration, are evidently supposed to mirror one another, as near palindromes. And Sophia is wisdom, one of the heavier Gnostic touches being to incorporate her into the Nisan church as its savior. The motif of the two angels making up one whole seems more in line with the yin and yang idea, or even a sort of version of the myth that Aristophanes relates in Plato's Symposium of lovers seeking their literal other half. Back downstairs in the library, Agnes, let's call it a scriptorium, she has no more information than that last bit about Sophia to share, and surely we can trust her if anyone. It was 500 years ago, that critical number, corresponding to the Fatima dynasty's founding of the kingdom in Ava and then stealing away the Omnigir. 500 years ago that she sacrificed herself for the people and was summoned to be with God. The truth of all this we'll see for ourselves if Fay can get it together. Now this is the part where even I feel like the pacing gets bogged way down with backstory. The townspeople have invited you to borrow a house from where Mason calls from the door, like it's time to stop playing and come in for dinner. Sigurd's there and says his heart is always calmed by this place, and it seems he's ready now to disclose more of what you've already overheard. This time, it's Satan and Mesa listening, the doc chiming in, the old knight all sympathy and solicitude for his young master. Sig lays out the way lambs are enslaved. Says he was one of them, working with Solaris, rising through the ranks, then leaving. And Bart understandably is hurt to hear all this so suddenly from someone he's trusted and looked up to to which Sig responds with a forceful vow to serve him faithfully and to give complete transparency, he answers a series of questions, which somewhat pointlessly the player can choose to ask 
like Faye did with Satan back in the transport ship. So we ask, where is Solaris? And we get a view of Nissan Town's rooftops, this tranquil setting in which such an intense conversation is taking place, about an invisible menace hidden behind dimensional gateways from which Sig and Satan escaped as stowaways on an aerial transport. You ask more about lambs, and you'll hear they're not only menial workers, but even serve in the bureaucracy, as everything from test subjects for drugs to brainwashed elites. Satan mentions that he is a native Solarian from the lower levels. Whether lower levels of status or literal placement within the city or both, anyhow he downplays this information. It's no secret. Ask about that man and you'll learn that both of them had hope in Ramses's ideals, and aligned with him at the time, awed by his abilities and his rise to power. Well then, why leave? Precisely because they themselves were so highly placed, they couldn't help seeing what was going on, and being disturbed by the fact that Ramses evidently had no problem with it. The dangerous use of psychological alteration drugs, to wit, drive. And to face horror, Bart mentions seeing it in Ellie's room. Even loyal soldiers, then, are treated like human guinea pigs in Solaris's bid for control. Once more, Mason asks Faye's help for Bart to make sense of all that he's heard. Bart stands on the walking bridge, not the bridge of the ship this time, but he's similarly alone there, and he has to shift his view of Sig from childhood rival to this much more complicated renegade. Satan tries to put into perspective for him Sig's plan to settle affairs in Ava before tackling Solaris head-on. He reiterates how Ramses's heroism was corrupted, going from their star of hope for true justice to merely another kind of elitist, as Bart sums him up. All this is just background, though. Bart's concern remains Gebler and Shikan. Gain thy throne, as he says, imitating Satan's flowery diction. This mock serious formal language will come back and be unintentionally funny in Graf's exchange with Vanderkalm. But first we have this strategy meeting in the town hall. It goes on. Presiding at the table, borrowed from the shop, Bart reminisces of his toy boat that he loaded with fireworks when he played Navy on the lake. This gives way to the chart of the continent as a whole. The plan is simple enough, though long-winded. They're going to aim to draw out the forces from the capital with a feint from Nissan using Kislev model gears, occupying the invincible fleet so-called for the flagship Kefeinsel, will be a tactical strike at the Kislev border. Surprisingly, Faye volunteers to lead it. He's decided that he and Bart are friends to the end. Bart and the Yggdrasil, of course, 
will meanwhile make directly for the castle to seize the throne. The day of the operation dawns with ominous music for all the tranquility of the setting. Margie is trying to lighten the mood by taunting Bart about his nerves while you make final preparations at the shop or take one more look at the church. You can run all the way around the lake if you want, but there's nothing new to see yet. And you probably can't afford the ether doubler on sale yet. But when you're ready, Satan remarks that there's a new wind blowing today, and then it's time to move out. Avoiding deaths among the Avith forces remains the pirate's M.O., though Fay has the boast of raising hell in my welltal. <laughs> that possessive mind is interesting. It's like what Ramses said about getting his wyvern ready to pursue them before Satan's message called him off. That's something Satan has still not disclosed, perhaps not even to Sid. As they say their farewells on the underground dock, there's more mock familiarity, or sorry, mock formality between his royal highness and the great mother, making much of their titles, these things which, like culture and art, are passed down through the generations. So our time in Nissan ends with Agnes's hopes for their marriage. As she puts it, that will be the best friendship, and for their prosperous reign together, like the rulers of old. The scenes begin to shift more rapidly now, as we get to the anticipated action. First, Maitreya and Faye razzing each other with a couple earthier titles, Sun and Pops. For all their bluster, Faye and Bart manifest real concern for one another's well-being. Faye seems to feel superstitious about the day's prospects. Don't jinx yourself. <laughs> jinx yourself, he tells him. A CG cutscene of the gear launch bay has Beltal charging up and taking flight. Solo, contra the Nissan Mist. A bit later, we see the Yggdrasil cruising under the moon. As Satan, whose precise role in the strategy, aside from masterminding it, is unclear, we assuage Mason's doubts, then go up to eavesdrop on Sigurd and Bart on deck. Twelve years it's been for his exile. Now it's finally time to take his place as king, as a true symbol of hope, as opposed to the false one in Ramses. And it's time, simply, to return home. Such a desire to get back, it sounds like, is what kept Sig going. He interjects some more comic relief now, telling Bart that if he's going to greet his people as king, he'd better take a bath first. And Satan, admiringly to himself, comments on Sigurd's great. In his own role as mentor to Faye, perhaps he wishes he could tell the truth in the same way that Sig has for Bart. 
Abruptly now, we cut not back to Fei, but to Ramses and Niang in bed together, asleep. There's the nightmare of the red-haired fighter that recurs now, this time with him ascending to take his place within a red gear, with Graf watching from his pillar. And now it's Ramses who's without a gear, facing the vicious opponent in his, and getting kicked aside before everything whites out with a brutal sound of inarticulate suffering. His heart beating fast, he spurns Miang's comforting words, hops out of bed, dressed in nothing but his undies, and leaves the room. Miang, still under the covers, speaks to what might be the player, teasingly chiding us for peeping. But it turns out that at her bidding, Graf makes himself visible with a creepy, low-frequency, throbbing sound effect. She taunts him with having seen Faye, with their resemblance hinting at the truth of their relationship. His threat to her to keep out of his way in practice also concedes that she can basically do what she wants, having manipulated the ministry into setting her up with Ramses. She clearly has the upper hand, but condescendingly dismisses Graf, calls him the first to hear about everything, and promises to be nice to him since their tenuous partnership goes back a long way. We'll get a glimpse of this ministry soon. The nature of Miang's role in all this will take a little longer to unravel. But at least part of Ramses's failure, it would seem, is down to his resistance to depending on her for help with his issues. That is, if the Misan beliefs are to be our guide. Back in the Yggdrasil. The sound effects officer, Franz, whose name is switched with Vance from the Japanese version, which must irk him as he's so careful with sounds, Franz notices, that's a penguin by the way, something out of place. Presumably it's not the deep throbbing of Groff's materializing and cloaking himself, but just a sand whale, since there's no other ship like theirs. The transmission channels and anchor wayings of the guard departing all sound good. They've taken the bait. Still, Maison has a bad feeling and bids the young master be careful, a premonition which will be reinforced in a moment. Meanwhile, Ellie and the Gebler boys are in their gear dock, getting ready. Each one, besides her, is indistinguishable in their black rig, but their profile drawings help tell them apart. There's more Miles Gloriosus, braggart soldier, wordplay, single-handed and empty-handed, rank and rank, which ties in with the sorts of issues that our party has just been processing, the elitism of Solaris, the trade-offs for individualism versus partnership. Whatever they might think of her, Ellie's new gear, Vierge, the Virgin, 
marks her out as being gifted with superior mental powers, and they'll be on display presently. Now we see Faye and his comrades, their rendezvous at the Rockies, jumping and exploring a brief couple of screens before meeting the lost repair bot beside a memory cube, who reports strong-looking gears above. If you've upgraded Veltal at all, though, they're a breeze, since the Gebler guy's stats haven't changed. And though the Gebler crew recognize and start taunting Faye, they're handily crushed. Vance, or is it Franz, is galled by losing yet again and so turns to the drug. Just needing more drive, he insists. This interrupts the action to send Ellie into another flashback, elaborating the one that we saw before in the forest, her being forced to use the drive and the bloody aftermath. We hear the investigators callously blaming the weakness of the dead men, telling her she's done nothing wrong. Back in the present, we hear her injection. We see the effect as a skewing of the screen and her portrait's face getting distorted. At once, she fires a slew of air rods, animum ether response offensive drones, as her crew helpfully comments for us, it's unmistakable evidence of her superior inner potential. Ellie goes on, spouting chosen people phrases, promising a painless kill, only to be overcome, tackled by Faye, who never gives up believing in her, calling her back to herself, holding her down in a wrestling pose which given the femininity of her gear and the masculinity of his, is more than a little unsettling. Until, in a burst of colorful energy, the last of the drug wears off. Debriefing on foot, apparently left alone by the men she took such drastic measures to try to protect, Ellie still insists she can't abandon her post. Once more, Faye sees how much they are the same. Not him, whose gear has gone out of control this time, but her. And as he puts it, paraphrasing her, they lick each other's wounds. He doesn't mention the vision in the room of Sophia, but wisely lets her go once again, back to her home, and goes himself to rejoin his friends. Now that premonition of Mason's sets the scene for the coup attempt. As he's cleaning in the bar, the young master's cup gets broken. Back in the waterworks, the old man's room, the old man recognizes Bart this time, and Bart gives some final instructions. In the Castle Bailey above the courtyard, it's a disaster, though. The good guys are ambushed. Soldiers all around, training their guns on them, and Shakan gloating with Miang by his side. She inflates Ramses, who saw through such a feint from the start, 
at the expense of Hyuga and Sigurd as well as Shakan, implying that Solaris prefers a stupid puppet to be on the throne. Striding away, leaving Shakan to this something he still has to do, Niang doesn't see Maison come to the rescue aboard the crab that Zitan had been working on and used in a similar way before. This time the rotors are going and the Gatling gun's poised. And in the last bit of intentional humor here, then the propeller goes flying off under the weight of the others that climb aboard, so that the old knight has to go running in circles to gain speed, then wall jumping out of the fray. In a trice, Bart has gone from heroic infiltration to shameful escape and fear. And it gets worse. But first, there's a lively scene of Faye launching down aggressively upon the border fleet. Bandercom's preposterous ineptitude is on display with his orders about the pea shooters and the big gun. While the gears go zipping along, skimming over the sand, dodging fire and mines and escort guards, pursuing the flagship. It's a gameplay mode that seems like a cross between the normal exploration and the Kislev Battle Arena mode that we'll deal with next time. And Faye and Co. take out ships almost casually, then incapacitate the guns of that invincible flagship, where Vanderkamp stubbornly refuses to evacuate when all the rest abandon ship. He still has that, he repeats to himself, muttering, unhinged. As leaders go, he has got to be one of the worst. But the players can't help but feel some pity for this hidebound fool, unable to adapt to the gear-based combat paradigm. As the wrecked fleet burns in the background, Faye and the others effuse with congratulations, but still worry about those on the main mission. As they're about to leave, we see shots of metallic claws and cannons coming online, and then the mighty Dora emerging from the ship as a parasite from a host. In the boss battle here, Bandercom will grab up the weak red gears to bludgeon Faye with. He's encased in heavy armor, which might lead you to waste fuel for a few turns. But still, you should be able to prevail. And once again, all seems well, until another fast, dark gear comes streaking in. It's gruff. Do you want the power? He asks, which makes sense. But then, doth thou desire the power? Which is grammatically confused. Doth being the third person singular. He or she doth, but thou dost. Dost thou? And flames spring up around him, coalescing in the hand he raises, and he spouts poetry, accompanied by the camera's choreography. My fist is the divine breath. Blossom, O fallen seed, and draw upon thy hidden powers. 
grant unto thee the power of the glorious mother of destruction. Grant here is a command which makes no sense. Shouldn't it be receive or I grant unto thee? And perhaps this is what prompts another cry of suffering sans sound effect. We cut back to the route of the Yggdrasil, and now from that ship, Franz had heard waiting to spring the trap, there come torpedoes, homing in despite their decoy, enforcing Bart to surface. All this watched by Ramses and Yang aboard their pristine ship. This time we see Carr's memory of Sigurd leaving. He's claiming to have been stealing technology all along to bring back to someone waiting for him. Which is, if it's true, another part of the story that he and Zatan have left out of their telling. Still, rather than finishing them off at once, Ramses offers terms for their surrender, namely the safety of Nisan. It's unusual for you to get lost Yang says, which I don't quite follow. Does she mean lost in thought? And he says that he promised an old friend to take it easy. Is that old friend Sig? Or is it Zatan, whom he apparently still takes orders from? Their emergency signal gets picked up by Maitreya at the border. And now round two against Vandercom goes a little rougher for them. Fedora firing blue beams and making mincemeat of the soldiers' brave rearguard action to try to help Faye to get away to aid Bart. But the flashes and ominous sound effects around Faye in his cockpit suggest that something else is about to happen. Bart, on his end, still gamely resisting, insists that surrender is not an option, that it will be the end, not only for them, but for Nissan too. If they lose the Idrisil, he prepares to try to break free, not a rat, not a sandworm now, as Ramses and Shakan insulted him, but an animal who won't be taken alive. And then reports of incredible energy come in. It's the red deer from the nightmare, flying along over the desert on green, transparent wings, casting explosive gouts of reactive rounds in its wake, nuclear explosions. Ramses heads out against Nyang's warning, and she laughs, but accompanies him on his doomed duel against this demon of Eru. Brigandir, steering the damaged ship, gets challenged first. Are you strong? <laughs> and his response is to try to evade the fight, and it's only perceived as playing dumb by this nemesis. In the creepy, subdued music that plays, titled One Torn Apart, the red gear casually rips Ramses's wyvern's gold arm off, kicking the boss aside to be gathered up by Miang in her gear. 
and she counsels that they make their getaway while the mad dog has a new toy. He's passive, taking a few rounds off, and then executes a combo that looks and sounds like the one that Faye used against Calamity back in the cave, wasting Bart for tens of thousands of damage, more digits than you might have supposed possible. Somehow, his gear isn't totally disintegrated, though, and Sigurd manages to jump, using the Bernoulli effect, we're told, to jump at the Yggdrasil on top of the red gear to save his master. The crumpled Yggdrasil flew, they laugh, but it's ironically enough going to be your airship later. And then it keeps flying. There's no Bernoulli effect, though. Somehow it's slowly lifted up off of Ramses's demon, whose identity by now we have surely guessed. The catastrophic reversal of Faye and Bart's initial meeting, where once again they don't recognize one another for who they truly are. And the red gear holds the cruiser up with one hand's aura of energy, not even touching it, says it's cheating, the language of play again, and throws it back in slow motion to crush Bart into the sand. Securing the bridge and shooting Satan out in the skate pod is all they can do. Once he's carried by that new wind he felt blowing, perhaps, to the border with Kislev and over it, seeing the Dora below. How careless of him if the Dora was stationed here. It looks just like the others he destroyed. So good luck with your Lacan, and uh, should have a conversation episode for you next time, I hope. Thanks again for listening.